0: Hello and welcome to Under the Skin, where I, Russell Brand, ask what's beneath the surface of people we admire, of the ideas that define our time, of the history we are told. This show is sponsored by my new book, Recovery. Pre order your copy by going to www.russellbrand.com. It's also available as an audiobook. Have a look at it as an audiobook as well, there. As you can see, I'm really good at reading things out, so should fill you with confidence. Now it's time for Under the Skin. Jason Hickel is an anthropologist at the London School of Economics. Originally from Swaziland, he spent a number of years living with migrant workers in South Africa, studying patterns of exploitation and political resistance in the wake of apartheid. Alongside his ethnographic work, he writes about development, inequality and global political economy for The Guardian and other online outlets. His new book, The Divide, A Brief Guide to Global Inequality and Its Solutions, is out now. Jason, welcome to Under the Skin.
1: Thank you for having me, Russell.
0: It's an honour to have you on. You're actually a doctor.
1: I am, although not the kind that can save your life, sadly.
0: Good, because, uh, you know, I mean, we could talk about medicine and all that kind of stuff, but I'm much more interested in talking to you about uh, global inequality. And I thought, one things, after sort of like recently having had um, Al Gore... On the show, for example, when talking about a huge issue like climate change. It's interesting, I feel, to listen to the framework within which these conversations, particularly conversations about significant change, uh, they take place within a sort of an identifiable framework. I wonder if you could talk to us, give us a bit of an overview of global inequality uh, how it how things stand economically, how we got into this position, and then we'll sort of crack on from there.
1: Well, I suppose the place to start is what do we presently think about global inequality and what's kind of happening in the world. So there's there's actually a dominant narrative out there that comes out of the World Bank predominantly um, and gets repeated uh, in the media quite often. That global inequality on again a global scale is actually diminishing. Um, along with globalization. So we know for a fact that globalization has caused inequality rates within countries to get worse. But the argument from the World Bank is that on a global scale, it's getting better. So the media picks this up. uh, Again, this happened most recently, a couple of years ago, and argues that, look, globalization is actually good for for the poor of the world. Uh, You know, it's working. We should keep doing it because it's the moral thing to do. So what's interesting is if you look behind those statistics, you find that they're actually quite misleading because uh, they think about global inequality um, uh, as if everybody um, in the world is part of the same big country, right? And so on that basis, it does appear that global inequality is diminishing, but only if you include China and East Asia. Now, interestingly, th- that's the only part of the world that um, has not been forcibly globalized um, by the Washington Consensus under U.S. pressure uh, since the 1980s. They've basically uh, transformed their economies um, according to their own standards. So it doesn't really work to have the narrative work that way. Now, and here's the crucial point. If you look at global inequality between regions of the world, between, say, the global north and the global south, or rich countries versus poor countries, what we see is that rather than diminishing, global inequality is getting dramatically worse. Since the 1960s, uh, the, the per capita income gap between the north and the south, rich countries and poor countries, has tripled in size. And that's really, that's really a dramatic, to me, a dramatic condemnation of uh, of globalization, pointing out that it's just not working for the vast majority of humanity. Um, the majority of, of the yields of uh, global capitalism are going to rich countries, and I think that's a big problem.
0: I suppose, in a way, it would be obvious that globalization would increase inequality, as globalization is a term which really covers the power of transnational corporations to have one marketplace that's Regulated in a way that's beneficial to them, so it kind of makes sense that that would mean that money was travelling in a particular direction, and it wouldn't be beneficial to the poorest and most vulnerable people. How how are these myths sustained, Jason? These ideas, like you know, like trickle down economics and you know mass production, that that ultimately, all you know, like how how after sort of nearly a century, uh, are these kind of ideas sustained? Is it kind of a form of propaganda? I mean, the management, of statistics, as you've all. Already
1: mentioned. Yeah. Um, first, I just want to briefly uh, touch on what you mentioned just now with trickle down. Mm. So, if you look at um, at all of the new income generated by global GDP growth over the past couple of decades, what's GDP? Gross domestic product. It basically measures the, the increasing size of the global economy. Um, only five percent of all new income generated by global growth has gone to the poorest sixty percent of humanity. So, that's an extremely slow rate of trickle down. It's barely
0: trickling down at all. It
1: won't even get there. It'll be a vapor by the time it's halfway down. That's exactly right. Yeah. And economists have pointed out that at that rate of trickle down, um, to eradicate poverty from the face of the earth, which is what we technically theoretically want to be doing, uh, would take over 200 years. Uh, that's how slow it trickles down.
0: If there was any intention to actually eradicate poverty, this is not the means
1: by which you would do it then. That is definitely true. And that's one of, that's basically the argument that I make in, in my book, The Divide. Um, but there is no intention to eradicate poverty <laughs>
0: poverty is necessary isn 't it for this global economic model hey so you 're an anthropologist doesn 't anthropologist mean study of human behavior
1: yes that's yeah that 's anthropology uh, so my um, my anthropological work is focused on a particular part of the world that 's south africa i 'm originally from Swaziland, so it 's quite close to where i 'm from. And again, I look at patterns of migration and exploitation in that region. But, uh, but just, I guess just by virtue of having grown up in Swaziland and then moving to the States for my university and PhD, um, you know, I was really grappling with this question of why are some countries so immensely rich and consume so much while other countries are so miserably poor and have been for such a long time? Uh, so I guess that's, you know, the the question of, of why the world is divided as it is economically has really exercised me and that kind of led me on this really ten or more year journey to to understand more about how the global economy works and and write that up in a way that the average person can understand. So the
0: aspect of anthropology that interests you is the movement of resources and capital and systems of dominance. And after your decade of research leading to this book of yours, The Divide, what are your most important observations? And uh, I'm glad you said in a language that anyone can understand, (laughs) because I'm anyone. So can you put it in, uh, tell us what your most important observations are?
1: Well, so I want to go back to the question you asked earlier about. No, you know, it's it's going. To, I'm going to ultimately answer the question you just asked. Right now, you, you mentioned this thing about narrative, right? Uh, mm-hmm. What's the narrative that sort of keeps the system chugging along? Oh yeah, that and was And It was a brilliant question, actually. So, and I think that probably uh, you know the, the center of this narrative is that. Um, you know, rich countries have become rich based on their own hard work and they have the right policies and they're smart, et cetera, et cetera. Whereas poor countries are poor because uh, you know, they have internal policy failures. Maybe they're corrupt. Maybe, maybe they have bad climates, not enough resources, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but rich countries are very generous. And what they do is they give generously of their surplus across mm. the divide to poor countries to help them sort of uh, up the development ladder. And so we hear this all the time from our politicians talking about the, uh, the international aid budget, the foreign aid budget. Mm. Um, and on a global scale, the foreign aid budget that flows from rich countries to poor countries is huge. It's $130 billion per year, right? Now, that sounds like a lot of money, and it is. That's about the, uh, the equivalent of all of the profits of all of the commercial banks in the U.S. combined uh, that, that goes from north to south every year. But um, if you look at all the money that flows around the world, way more flows from south to north on an order of magnitude, then trickles the other way. And mm. I think that is really the, uh, the key point that we need to make here that aid is not flowing from north to south, it's flowing from south to north, it's flowing in reverse. So basically, poor countries are developing rich countries. I see. Rich countries are not developing poor countries.
0: So that, the, the, but the, what the, that that flows from north to south is contextualized as aid. And that that flows from south to north is contextualized as good business, is economics. But really, you would say it's sort of post-colonial exploitation.
1: Yeah, you can see it as as plunder or you can see it as tributes. Um, but here's a really important fact. So, And this is actually quite recent data. Uh, so I guess it was a December or January, um, an, an institute in Washington, D.C. called Global Financial Integrity partnered with the Norwegian School of Economics to do the most comprehensive study of financial flows around the world ever conducted in the world uh, in history. And what they found is that poor countries are net creditors to rich countries um, uh, to, uh, on such a scale that for every dollar of aid that poor can re- receive from rich countries – uh, they lose $24 in net outflows, right? I mean, so basically the South is effectively hemorrhaging wealth to the North. And this happens through all sorts of flows, like um, illicit financial flows, like basically corporations stealing money out of poor countries and, and storing them in tax havens, uh, many of which are controlled by the city of London. When you say stealing money, what do you
0: mean by what means? Ah, uh, yes.
1: Yeah, so this, there's a mechanism called, uh, called trade mis-invoicing, and basically, the way this works is that a company will uh, will falsify its trade invoices when it's exporting goods out of a poor country into a rich country, right? Um, and by doing that, it can actually end up taking, uh, taking money offshore, putting it in a tax haven. And it's very difficult for customs to stop this. Um, it's a practice that's been legalized basically by the WTO since 1994. Um, Again, and the WTO, of course, is controlled largely by rich countries since they have the bargaining power. So they were able to sort of establish this rule, which is deeply detrimental to poor countries.
0: So these like apparently neutral governing and regulatory bodies are in fact, in a way, the administrative henchmen. Of a system of globalization that's based on the exploitation of poorer countries.
1: Yeah, that's a good way to put it. I should write that in my next book. No, nope, <laughs> patented. Um, yeah, so you know, so if you look at if you look at just illicit financial flows alone, uh, then that's over one trillion U.S. dollars that flows from from poor to rich every year, uh, which outstrips the aid budget itself by a factor of ten. Uh, Right. And there's also all sorts of other flows, like um, like the interest payments on foreign loans that poor poor countries have to pay, um, uh, profit repatriation from multinational companies, uh, et cetera, et cetera.
0: I suppose part of your point then, Jason, is that many of these systems that we consider to be sort of objective and just are kind of administrative fictions, perhaps the economy itself and even something like uh, GDP it's just an idea. It's not an, an
1: objective reality. Is that part of what you're saying, mate? Yeah. No. Absolutely. Uh, and uh, I'll definitely want to talk a bit more about GDP and how that is a fiction of our imagination that's become quite destructive. But, um, but just to just to go back to what you were saying earlier about these administ- administrative it's bodies. Back like to Ronnie sketch. <laughs> He's always answering a question from <laughs> one before. <laughs> well, you mentioned you mentioned these global administrative bodies, and it's not just the WTO. It's also like the World Bank and the IMF. So look, at I've the, never liked those uh, uh, acronyms,
0: acronyms. I've always thought IMF, <laughs> WBO. Like, always like whenever I see stuff, I think they're dodgy.
1: Are they? Then? They're definitely dodgy, and here's the deal, is that the World Bank and the, and the International Monetary Fund are, uh, are basically the institutions that control the rules of the global economy, right? Now and here's the thing, they're profoundly anti-democratic institutions. So rich countries which have a minority of the population of the world. Um, have about fifty percent of the vote in these institutions. The U.S. government has a veto over all major decisions made in these institutions. That means the so, whole thing's pointless anyway. The whole well, thing's exactly. theater. I mean, yeah, it's deeply—it's a deeply compromised system. I think it's—and uh, and for me, you know, the problem is primarily that it's anti-democratic. If you were to, uh, um, you know, open up the WTO and World Bank and the International Monetary Fund to real democratic. Uh, Practices and give poor countries a fair voice in how the global economy is run, definitely we would see dramatic change.
0: You might as well get shot of them. There's no point buggering about with it. So, okay, so the WBO, IMF, all those things. <laughs> I keep, I know I'm listing boxing organizations. <laughs> now, Conor McGregor, should he really be able to fight Floyd Mayweather? <laughs> Clearly. <laughs> uh, so, uh, so um, <clears throat> hey, give us some more of those statistics that are sort of uh, mind boggling, like. Uh, you know, like how can we how can an ongoing narrative be the depletion of poverty when e.g. a billion people are living on less than a dollar a day and the one that sort of always clumps me in the face when I read it the richest eight people in the world control the same amount of wealth as the poorest half of the world's population yeah that's
1: a killer fact it's horrible um Mm. so I want to go to the poverty number that you just mentioned Mm. so and that sounds bad enough of course you do I know the system now (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> That's uh, you know the world. The World Bank and the UN um, are telling us that uh, the number of poor people in the world is um, between 700 uh, million and 1 billion people, basically right now. Um, and what they've been saying is that that number has been decreasing over the past 15 or so years um, because of their the, the way the good things that they're doing basically through aid and so on. Um, but if you look at how they measure poverty, uh, there's a real problem at stake. Um, that that number comes from a poverty line that's a dollar25 uh, per day, right now, um, scholars from all over the world have been pointing out that nobody can live on a dollar twenty-five a day. It's a totally ludicrous, immoral number. Uh, so, in order to achieve the most basic levels of human subsistence, uh, to achieve normal human life expectancy, you know, to have a decent chance of surviving past your fifth birthday, et cetera, et cetera, you have to have at least five dollars per day, right? As like a moral minimum. They call this the ethical poverty line. Can't uh, we just get below that moral minimum, I <laughs> suppose. So <laughs> exactly. So and here's the thing: if you measure if you measure global poverty at that level, then uh, it's not one billion people in poverty; it's four point three billion people in poverty, which is sixty percent of the world's population. And the number has been getting bigger over time, not getting smaller. And so again, I think that the narrative that we have. Um, that comes out of some of these bodies that don't worry, poverty is uh, diminishing, inequality is diminishing, is just not true. And if you look at the scholarship behind it, we see exactly the opposite story. And so we really have to ask ourselves, why is the global economy so fundamentally flawed? To fix this problem, to make it fair, um, is going to require more than just tweaking around the edges with a bit of aid here and there, uh, but rather fundamentally reorganizing the system.
0: How on earth will we fundamentally reorganize a system when the system is clearly beneficial
1: to the people that control it? That's a good question. So, <laughs> so um, you know, I guess you can think about it this way um, in terms of is this possible or not. Uh, so I have lots of students. and a lot, a lot of my students come in, like, you know, deeply concerned about poverty and inequality and so on. Um, and they get really interested in, in, uh, in solutions like you know, microfinance or foreign aid or whatever it might be. Um, uh, but the problem is that the solutions that they're interested in don't actually target the real structural causes mm. of the problems that they they are so concerned to address. Yes. If we can if we can get messages out to to these students who fill the development industry and all the development organizations that are out there that are trying to tackle these problems, that what we need is to tackle these the the real deep structural drivers, yes, the actual yes. causes of the problem in the first place. Uh, then. Um, then you know the problem can be solved relatively quickly. Go on. Uh, so, um, so you know, I, I mentioned one of the one of the top solutions for me would be would be democracy in the institutions of global governance. So, mm. um, and there are all sorts of proposals out there. I mean, this is a demand that global South countries have been making for a long time for a fair for a fair. Weird, because
0: I never hear those arguments. So, like for ages, they've been going, "Can we have a bit of democracy in these world governance organizations?" And that message just never gets heard. Never
1: gets heard. Never gets heard. Um, Yeah. So, you know, I think that there's all sorts of other interesting ones. Like, for example, um, there's a huge wage differential between workers in the global north and workers in the global south. Um, and a lot of that is due to the fact that multinational companies can move around the world looking for the cheapest possible labour, mm. but workers can't move across borders as freely. Right? Absolutely and not! Which is horrible. <laughs> so what that means is that workers end up having to try to compete with each other to drive their own wages down. Oh. Uh, and that's really been... It's, well, it's a horrible game. It's a horrible game. This is dystopian. It is.
0: We're all so... already living in dystopia. Yes. But we are in the global north, luckily. Mm. So that's something...
1: Yes, I suppose. Uh, Although it's not totally clear to me that we really deserve our privileges here.
0: And also... We're not part of those eight people that have got half of everything, are you? Sadly not. <laughs> <laughs> so, like as you say, it's deep structural change. Like that, that like when I was to, uh, talking to Al Gore, who was absolutely lovely, and, and a lot of people said talking at Al Gore very unfairly in my view. <laughs> like that, uh, one. The, my main point was: how can you have significant change within a context that is designed to prohibit real change? And once, when Yanis Varoufakis was here, he said, he said. that that Wolfgang Schauber said to him, democracy's okay as long as it don't change anything. So, as you are now saying, Jason, systemic change is what's required. Now, what are the... Air, like, so what I feel like that I want this podcast to do is marshal people's attention into the correct areas. Instead mm-hmm. of going, oh, well, it would be ever so nice to have some micro banking, like your lovely students coming in on day one in their big, <laughs> lovely scarves and their rosy cheeks all full of optimism. Instead of that saying, well, what is it? What ideas should we be pushing? What should we be campaigning for? Now, you've mentioned democracy at the level of global uh, of institutions that glo- uh, govern global finance. That's one thing. OK, we've
1: remembered that. What else? So in order to really understand what's at stake here, I think that we have to understand how uh, global inequality came to be as extreme as it as it is right now right so we need like some of the historical perspective there okay so. i'll handle this one
0: a lot of people are very very lazy then there's countries european countries where we really were an industrious bunch and we cracked yeah. on and got a lot of things done now is there an alternative <laughs> version
1: so the alternative version is that we might want to start with colonialism right? right um which and if you want to look for sort of like the origins of, of mass poverty it really is uh it really is under colonialism which was basically a process of mass displacement of peasants from the land and, uh, and a total wreckage of, uh, of local economies. Um, so we know for a fact that during, during the colonial period, uh, in most regions, um, income growth, real income growth per capita was about only 0.5% per year for the entire colonial period. Uh, meanwhile, as a result of colonialism, um, rich countries like Britain uh, got to grow at uh, more than three times that much. And so that was a major driver of inequality. But he, but here's the interesting point. I mean, if you want, we can go back to colonialism at some point. But um, but in the wake of colonialism, in the two decades after colonialism ended in, 19, in the 1950s and 1960s, there was a complete miracle in the global south. Um, you know, they suddenly had a democracy and they had control over their own economic policies. And what did they do? They elected leftist progressive leaders wow. and they brought in tariff protections to protect their markets from uh, cheap goods from abroad. Mm. They uh, they nationalized their own resources. They nationalized uh, a lot of big companies and banks. Um, you know they increased labor standards. They 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 redistributed land from rich landowners to peasants. And mm. with these policies, they were remarkably successful. Were they? So, they what were, countries are these?
0: Would you mind telling us, please?
1: I mean, it was all over the global South, but you can you can see it. I guess most uh, most clearly, I suppose, in Latin America. I mean, look at what was happening in. Uh, in Chile and Brazil and Uruguay. You can also see it in, um, in parts of the Middle East like Egypt. In East Asia, this is very clear as well. Um, so the global so, south, was-
0: unshackled
1: from colonialism, found its
0: way towards uh, policies like socialism, nationalism, okay. redistribution of wealth, management of trade, and I suppose systems that were focused on people rather than profit broadly
1: exactly yeah and they and they were used and they were using their their national wealth to invest in things like education and healthcare and so as you can imagine you know p- you know poverty starts diminishing right. and the gap between rich countries and poor countries starts closing for the first time in history it was really a kind of miracle and you would think that Rich countries, since they always go on about wanting to develop poor countries, would be very excited about this trend, right? Finally, you know, there's success and poverty is reducing. But quite the opposite, (laughs) actually. What we see is that um, rich nations feel that they're losing their access to cheap labor and Uh cheap raw materials in the global south. Uh, And so, you know, the the access they'd enjoyed under colonialism. Uh And so they start intervening uh violently by deposing a lot of these progressive leaders. You know. So um, I remember reading all those about those leaders. They're a horrible bunch. Yes.
0: I see. <laughs> so globalization is just colonization by another name. Colonialization.
1: Um, yeah, I suppose, yeah. Um but you know what's interesting is that uh is that you know the the series of coups that started unfolding um, uh, led by Britain and the US and France and Belgium.
0: What were we uh, doing? We were funding coups uh, to, to we
1: get were, rid We were either o- overthrowing uh, leaders in the global south ourselves or we were funding movements to overthrow them or we were just supporting right-wing dictatorships to prevent... Uh, democratic revolutions from happening. God, we're uh, so crafty, aren't we? We really love a bit right. of profit. We'll do whatever it takes.
0: <laughs> Go getters, I say we are. Us in the global north. So I suppose it's um, oh, wow. How that's fa- fascinating. I didn't know that. So that like in a very sh- short period of time, post-colonially, economic disparity was decreased because people obviously acted in a kind of a national self-interest, not the sort of rampant individualism uh, and inequality-producing mm. systems that we have mm. grown to know and love. But these are but all. Of these uh, regions were pretty much successfully destabilized
1: and that that movement was quashed, right? Well, yeah, the movement was quashed, but it wasn't actually by the coups. So the coups, the coups took a, a really big toll, right? And the most famous of these is the coup against Salvador Allende in Chile in 1973. And you can watch footage of it on YouTube, actually, bizarrely. But uh, but so even despite these interventions, the Global South was still rising through the 70s, okay? Um, but then, and, and, and the Global North in the form of the G7 literally s- sat down around tables, leaders of the G7 sat down, down around tables to figure out how to stop this movement. Um, the movement was called developmentalism, uh, and, uh, and it was very successful. And, uh, and they couldn't figure out ways to sort of block this, because it was becoming very powerful. In the halls of the UN, which was a democratic body, Global South countries were winning uh, new policies that were fairer for them, basically. Um, so, but then in 1980, the tables turned dramatically. in a single crazy event that changed the global order in one fell swoop. And that was the third world debt crisis. So basically, the, the U.S. Federal Reserve jacked up interest rates, um, um, you know, to really high levels, like 20%. And Global South uh, countries were heavily indebted um, in U.S. dollars. They suddenly were not able to pay their debts back because of the interest rate hike. And they slid to the brink of default. Now, in, and if they, if they were going to default, Wall Street would have basically collapsed. And so Wall Street talked to the U.S. government and said, please, you need to bail us out. You need to solve this problem. U.S. government talked to the IMF and said, you are going to go and roll over the debts of those developing countries uh, on the condition that they adopt what we call structural adjustment programs, which basically means liberalize your trade, uh, cut your labor rules, cut your environmental regulations, uh, privatize your companies and your assets – Um, uh, et cetera, et cetera. This is
0: what Naomi Klein talks about in shock doctrine, isn't it? That these sort of global policies led to the destabilization of those regimes. Just one point I want to pick up on there, Jason. See that 20% hike by the Federal Reserve. Was that part of the scheme? How come they did that?
1: So that was not exactly part of the scheme, actually. That had to do with with a domestic problem in the U.S. at the time. So the U.S. was suffering with what we call stagflation. um, Yeah. Yeah, so. <laughs> Stagflation. Well, you can see a doctor. Jason's missus is involved. Oh, no, I can't show her. I'm embarrassed. <laughs> it was basically high levels of inflation, but low levels of growth. And so they had to figure out some way to to increase levels of growth again because the rich people were really upset that they weren't, that they weren't gaining uh, you know, a fair income share. Mm. <laughs> and so what they figured out that they, they could if they raised interest rates, it would basically cause a recession in the U.S. It would empty out the factories, break the back of the labor unions, which were very powerful at the time, and, uh, and decrease the price of labor, which it succeeded in doing. Um, and as a result, the cost of labor in the U.S. has not risen since 1980, if you can imagine it. So it was, it was to solve a domestic problem political problem right. but it had these ramifications around the world that changed the way the world worked for uh,
0: ultimately for the to the benefit of the same interests no because the uh, wall street said to imf go roll all over these loans they said we'll do it as long as you adopt these systems that are amenable to our world view and everyone's cushy jobs are gooden." you're yeah. very good at describing these things in a way that uh, i can understand because i understood that just then now good. i'm angry
1: about it what we're we gonna do <laughs> Um, Yeah, I'm angry, too. And a lot of I would say most people in the world are angry. No, as angry as me, mate. I'm fuming.
0: (laughs) I'm fuming about
1: this. (laughs) You know, what's interesting is that people were so angry that they took to the streets in masses. Right. So this so these structural adjustment programs cut like caused per capita income growth rates to collapse from a high of three point two percent, which was really high for the South. Um, down to 0.7%, basically economic crisis, right? In Africa, um, we saw incomes actually decline over a decade or more. I mean, this, this caused millions of people uh, to be pushed into poverty. It was a, a complete travesty. Uh, it's, it was the greatest single cause of poverty um, uh, in the 20th century after colonialism. So people understandably took to the streets, um, uh, in what we called IMF riots, uh, you know, Ooh, but I that. what's what's interesting is that, you know, and and they complained to their governments. they were like, look, you know, stop these austerity policies. Basically, that's what they are. Mm. Um, you know, we want to go back to the fairer economic policies we had before. Um, but here's the thing is that Global South countries themselves, the governments themselves couldn't do anything about it because control over macroeconomic policymaking in uh, in these countries had been shifted to bankers and technocrats in Washington and New York, right? And so, in fact, structural adjustment had worked as a kind of bloodless coup, if you will. Yes. Uh, in one fell stroke, almost, they were able to establish effective control over economic <sighs> policymaking uh, processes in the global south. So, in a sense,
0: democracy at the level of uh, – uh, at the state level was – irrelevant and redundant because uh, the economic strings were held elsewhere and from what you just said there Jason about economics that ec- that economics is not some objective science as Yanis Varoufakis said when he were in here uh, and as I, now l- I'm learning from you, that it's just a model for, man- for maintaining inequality, that all of these systems are alterable by certain people some people are allowed to shift the rules change the rules, some people aren't and it's a way of continually managing power
1: yeah, exactly. I think that's so important to understand is that is that flows of, of resources and wealth around the world all have to do with the rules of the global economy and who gets to set those rules, right? Mm. So um, in, the, in the 1980s, basically beginning then is when uh, power over these rules was centralized in, in Washington and New York at the World Bank and in Wall Street and the IMF. We've got to get rid of them, have we? Well, you know, and what's, I mean, personally, yes, I do believe that. Um, and I don't think that's a radical position, actually, since um, most people in the global south have, have made the same demands for a long time. Uh, why can't, uh, I'm sorry for asking questions that 12-year-olds would ask, why can't
0: uh, like some of those countries in the global south go, we ain't paying that stuff no more. Like, is that what happened with Greece? Is that what they did? They went, we're just paying you, mate. Why can't you do that? No, I think that's
1: that's such a good question because the other option that Global South countries had, instead of submitting the structural adjustment, would have been to just default on their loans, right? Now, there's there's some problems with that. A, um, in the 1980s... Uh, somebody tried, okay? Mm. And Who this was is that? This is such an inspiring story. Um, there's a guy named Thomas Sankara. He was the, pres- the revolutionary president of Burkina Faso, a West African country. He was a young man. He was a brilliant social reformer. He was considered the Che Guevara of Africa. Go on, um, mate! And you can listen to his speeches online. They're amazing. He's What's a really inspiring again? guy. Thomas Sankara. Thomas Sankara. Yeah. And Thomas Sankara, uh, as president of Burkina Faso, stood up in the halls of the African Union um, in the early 1980s, I want to say. And, uh, and he gave his famous speech against debt. He said, um, you know, comrades, basically debt is a form of neocolonialism. It means mm. that the West gets to control what happens uh, in terms of economic policy in our countries. And this is what he said. He said, um, here's the thing about debt. Uh, if you do not pay it, nobody dies. Right? <laughs> if you do pay it, we surely die. And it was interesting because the room electrified, and he basically like started a kind of uh, revolution against debt, right? Yeah. Uh, and three months later, he was assassinated oh. in a French-backed coup. Oh. So and so, here's the thing: is that is that the knew it wasn't going to end
0: well for old never Thomas. Never
1: ends well, does it? Thomas. He was a good looking guy, too, I have to
0: say. Mate, don't objectify him. He's just
1: come <laughs> up with a brilliant
0: bloody revolution against debt, but, but we will have a look at him in a minute. Oh, he sounds like a bloody hero. So, a lot of these terms, right, that's interesting. So, like, like I like that. Debt is a, a sort of a, another way of crowbarring sort of colonialism into the mix. When I was thinking about, like, you know, these rules, people think about these w- rules, these economic rules that dominate global tr- global trade and the flow of resources around the world as a sort of obvious objective, but they are, of course, determined by the powerful. So we should look very carefully at these non-national, transcendent global organisations, such as the IMF and uh, other things that I keep thinking of as wrestling organisations, <laughs> because they are set in the structures that mean that change is impossible. Another thing that just occurred to me is when people say, like, you know, oh, what's the answer? Redistribution of wealth. Well, redistribution of wealth is what's been happening all along. The wealth of the South has been redistributed to the North, and of course this isn't just happening on a global level, it's happening on uh, on the level of caste and class within each of these countries, because there's loads of people. Of course, look out this window here in London Leicester Square, and you'll see people that are in the global global north, and it ain't going too well for them either. They're sleeping out there on those streets now. Like I suppose, really, what's required is an ideological shift that's to you know the 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 self-corrective measures that were applied in some of the countries in the 70s that brought about that economic miracle on a national level of socialism nationalization and uh, protective trade tariffs it's almost like at this point we need a way of excuse me presenting those kind of ideas on what a global level or just popularizing the ideas so Perhaps parties could run on them because I sometimes you now after what happened with Syriza and Greece and you know like and, and sort of what's happening in this country with Jeremy Corbyn or Bernie Sanders in, in the USA. I sometimes think, well, if the, you did have a leader like Corbyn got in, would these uh, global institutions prevent real change from being
1: enacted? Would they? Yeah. Um, well, uh, or are you going to answer a question from this morning? <laughs> <laughs> I suppose. Yeah, I suppose one of the most important interventions. Um, is to cancel the debts, and I really mean that. I don't mean like let's for, let's forgive some debts, which you know suggests like somehow they sinned. Mm. <laughs> really?
0: What are these debts anyway?
1: Well, so the, the debts, um, w- most of them actually were accumulated during the 1970s after the oil after the oil crisis in 1973. Um, basically, what it meant is that in order to uh, to to fund their own consumption, global South countries had to borrow tons of money mm. because the price the price of oil was so high. Um, and so a lot of these debts are actually still hanging around since the 1970s, some even older than that. And because of the miracle of compound interest, many of them have been paid paid off many times over uh. already, and yet they're still paying them off. And so it's kind of this, I mean, it, it's a problem in two ways. Uh, it's kind of a fl- it's like a flood of cash that goes from poor countries directly to banks, mostly in rich countries. Um, and the other thing is it means that p- that uh, governments don't have effective control over their own policymaking, mm, e- economically course. speaking. So if you cancel the debts uh, in a, in a radical way, yes. which would require, of course, um, global South countries getting together to resist debt, yeah. to to refu- to collectively refuse repayments. You know they can't assassinate them all at the same time. Uh, that would look bad. Then, and <laughs> that would look bad, right? Then, uh, then you know, then you free. Then countries are freed up to pursue policies. It's that are It's almost
0: fair like you don't want the north or the you know cancelling them. You just want the south go, We ain't paying them. It's not. We're not down to you cancel them or not. We're cancelling them. We're just right, not right. paying it. That's sort of what's required. Now, I suppose you know the, the, what, what historically what the penalties have been have been, as you say, the assassination of people that propose those kind of measures and the replacement with regimes that are friendly to the objectives of the, the the institutions that continue to benefit so what's i suppose like interesting is whether or not new alliances can be made because i feel sort of naturally more of an affinity with the people that would be canceling the debt rather than the debtors even though i'm you know here in a lovely studio in the global north and I'm doing pretty
1: well (laughs) yeah and i think that that's maybe increasingly true because if you look at the number of people who have student debt in the u.s i mean that's a that's a trillion dollars of student debt right there they also realize that there's a real problem with the debt system uh and if if you if you can start building sort of at least conceptual alliances across um across these different classes of debtors then i think that you can you can sort of free yourself to imagine a world without it cancel debt yeah. Good
0: point Jason, but I'm going to just have to have an I'm going to have to stop you there Jason to do an advertisement break. What if you could give back while you slept? Lisa is an innovative direct-to-consumer online mattress brand that is also socially conscious. This is the sort of thing we're talking about. So you can have a mattress, you don't have to sleep on a spike. Driven by the mission to provide a better place to sleep for everybody. For every ten mattresses Lisa sells, they donate one to a shelter through their one ten programme. That's nice, isn't it? A shelter's gonna get a mattress. Not to mention Lisa also plants one tree for every mattress sold and donates one per cent Jason, sit back down. One percent of each employee's time to volunteer for local causes. But best of all, Lisa's patented universal adaptive feel is designed for all types of sleepers and features three premium foam layers, including... Two inch of Foam top layer for cooling and breathability. Two inch memory foam. Some things I don't want to remember that we're not on that bed. Two inch of memory foam for body contouring and pressure relief. This sounds lovely. And six inch dense core support foam for durability and structure for sleepers of all sizes. It's available online in the US, UK, Canada, and Germany, or at the Lisa Dream Gallery. In NYC, the 100% American made. See, now, there you go. That's what you want, isn't it? Jobs in America, ships or travels, you know, compressed. In a little box to your door so you can save a trip to the store. No wonder it's in Forbes' top 20 startups to watch. See, that's good. Try a Lisa mattress in your own home for 100 nights risk-free. Not in my house. With free shipping always. And get $100 off when you go to com slash brand. Don't slash the mattress, though, you weirdo. That's L E. E S A dot com slash brand. Go on, go to that, because if these things sell well, I'll be able to get some power. And you know I'll be good with power. Okay. Right, Jason. Now what the, what are you on about? Again, global economics, is it? Just try and concentrate.
1: Because
0: um, one of the things I was thinking again with alcohol, was like that we're like with we're prioritizing economic systems which are fictions or f- Fabrications, certainly concepts that have been created by mankind, we're favouring them over actual, factual, material, physical things like the planet and meteorological systems. And again, with all this, you know, like with what you're saying about debt management and trade manipulation, some countries have resources. So, like, how is a country like Africa that is mineral rich, or like Latin America with all of its agriculture and minerals, how are they poor? If you can produce those things, then that's it. You've produced those things clearly what's required is like on one level a different way of looking at economics on a global basis but that's going to mean obviously what that does is it challenges the interests of the people that are in control of the system as it currently stands so ultimately you arrive at a point don't you, Jason, where what is required? It's not like you've said these things out loud now. These ideas are out there. So what do you do? You popularise these ideas. Where does the rubber meet the road, as our American cousins say? Where does it become like, well, we're not doing this, we're not doing that, we're going to shut down this, we're going to shut down that? Who is the enemy? Who do we target? Where do I stand? What do we do?
1: Um, Yeah, that's a good question. I'm not sure. I mean, I guess we could brainstorm right now. But, but for me, um, you know, the important first step is to free ourselves of these false narratives about aid and development that we have right now, you know, good done. Yeah. So um, and then, uh, and again, you know, uh, debt cancellation, I think is essential democratizing the world system is essential. Uh, I was going to mention earlier, I was going to mention the importance of a fairer uh, international wage system. So um, you know again, wages in the South are much lower than in the north if you you know it, and it 's possible actually to to bring in a kind of global minimum wage system that mm-hmm. would be governed by the u n through the International labor Organization and you would set the minimum wage at fifty percent of each country 's median wage and basically uh, you would eradicate working poverty pretty much overnight um, and this proposal's been made by a number of economists. We know that there 's a system in place that 's capable of handling it. What's the um, counter-argument?
0: Why do people say, you can't do that, why that would lead to... You know, what is their argument for why you can't do stuff like that?
1: Uh, I guess their argument would be that, um, you know, uh, well, I, I guess I guess proper neoliberals would say you should never regulate wages. Um, but, he, but here's the way that I see it, right? If, if we're going to have a system where uh, where capitalism is globalized, then it only stands to reason that mm. we need a system where the rules that regulate capitalism are also globalised. Yeah, uh, right. So um, I guess that's the way that I would... So if you
0: have it. global free movement of capital, you need global free movement of way, uh, of workers. If you have global capitalism, you need global regulation of the way that people are paid. So it's a really biased, messed up system. Tell me about, like, like let's have a look at some of the bogeymen of this system. Who's benefiting from this? What about companies like uh, Big Billy, like Super transnational companies like Apple. What's going on with them? Haven't you got some sort of terrible thing to tell us about them? <laughs>
1: um, yeah, I mean, I guess I guess Apple's only one of many companies that uh, that only really exists because they're able to, uh, to exploit very cheap labor in the global south. Um, and, you know, at some point, I think um, Trump even said to the CEO of Apple, you know, you need to bring these factories back home. Was it Trump or maybe somebody else? And he was like, look, these factories are not going back home. Basically, Apple cannot... Cannot, right. Has no business model. We can't be with, Apple without,
0: unless we've got little boys mining in Africa. Exactly. Like I, we saw, we'd made a like a, an episode of The Truth on online news thing we do, and it was, wasn't it, Gareth? It was like some, some just arse achingly terrible thing about little children are mining for this resource that's in your iPhone, and you sort of watch it and think, oh bloody hell, you know, like it's sort of uh, unimaginable uh, and, and it's, uh, it's, what do I want to say? Sort of negligence, cruelty, irresponsibility that we don't really countenance. When you hold an Apple iPhone or an iPad in your hand, you don't think, and you're encouraged not to think of what the consequences of that are. And mm-hmm. for and like, because uh, haven't we already been bred and inculcated to think as consumers? You know, I think it would be very difficult for me as an individual, although I am willing to do it, to get to let go of you know this product or that that product, this privilege, that privilege. People continually, if you're a, if you're not sort of basically homeless or living in a commune, people say, why don't you give up your car then? Why don't you give up this then? Why don't you give up that then? And I think these things are all valid arguments as part of a sort of a mobilisation of significant change. But you can see that any gestural move from any individual is of little value unless there's a sort of targeted change. One of the things I read once in Adbusters that I really liked was saying like, pick a couple of corporations to really target and annihilate like you know like sort of saying like if you you know you could sort of like they they, they outlined how a few corporations have hugely transgressed. general motors with their irresponsible you know not recalling cars that they knew were killing people because it worked out economically better to leave them out there and pay the lawsuits or philip morris knowing for years that their tobacco was killing people or even what you're saying there like a you know a big friendly and attractive organization like apple that like, you know whose products i own and use and will use within the hour you know like and people will be listening to his podcast on those phones, you know, we're all participating in it, but we're participating from this position, it seems Jason, of impotence and like, I feel that Because this uh, really what we end up discussing here is narratives, the way that stories are told, that we don't think it's possible to have significant change. Unless we come up ourselves with stories, ideas, objectives that are accessible and attractive, change won't happen. I don't know how to sort of start, you know, getting people out on the streets, banging a drum to bloody democratise the IMF. I don't know how to make people do that you know or interest people in that even
1: yeah you know uh, here's the way that i think about it um i guess i I guess first of all uh you know this idea of of seeing about changing our own personal consumption habits i think that is important but what's much more important is that we organize collectively to create a system in which it's not it's not possible in the first place that apple can be exploiting workers like that right um you know so we need a kind of collective solidarity before we just need personal responsibility Mm. um so, uh.
0: Do you feel collective solidarity with, you know, do you feel that as a man? Do you feel, is that something that you experience? You're an anthropologist, you're an economist, you're teaching young people about this stuff. Even though you're only thirty-four years old, you're like some sort of gorgeous boy band professor. Sorry to objectify you, but you did it to that man in Africa. So attempt. how do you like it? <laughs> um, so unlike you know, so do you feel this sense of this kind of solidarity? I'm even now watching a man who I imagine is from Latin America emptying our garbage here at Global. Uh, you know, like and and you know, this is everywhere. This is all around us. This is us. And you know, that I find it very difficult to. Get purchase to understand how. What shall I do now? Then, and I think there is a real appetite. I think the sort of the surprising result of the last election, the the success of Bernie Sanders to a degree, I like all these things point to people's appetite for change. And like it's only the fact that stories like you know I grew up, like when I grew, up I just thought oh all that that coup in Nicaragua and you know and bloody Pinochet and all that. You just think that's how things are meant to be, how it's mm-hmm. got to be. I even like the struggle in Ireland. I sort of grew up with the view you're supposed to have, you know, it's, and like you know. It's very difficult to get these stories out there. How do we emotionally engage people around sort of economic arguments that always feel abstract because they are bloody abstract unless you're a little kid mining for some mineral somewhere?
1: Yeah, no, I I think that's absolutely right. We we need better and more powerful and more convincing stories. I mean, think about the power of the existing development narrative. So we need something that will tear that apart, but also, uh, you know, create a rival to it, right? Mm. And the thing is, you know, there's no question that 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 we are more inspiring and more convincing, and the thing is, you know, I can see it in my in my own students, right? Mm. Uh, like the, they all want to change the world. They, they have these little ideas about aid and microfinance. It, as soon as you explain to them how the world actually works in terms of the global economy, uh, and and point them in the direction of real structural change, they are so excited about that. And now imagine if the millions of uh, of people in Britain who are part of gap years and other uh, like student development projects, or NGOs, uh, and the hundreds of billions of dollars that are in that industry. Imagine if that was channeled into making the world fairer. Mm. I mean, it would change radic- radically and dramatically and would not require a single drop of additional foreign aid uh, in order to eradicate poverty and inequality
0: so it seems like it would be nice to have like a little five point plan of five things that would radically change the world right you go right the, here are five ideas that if these things were implemented it would radically change the world and then the f- next thing you'd hear is the people whose interests are currently being served telling you aggressively repeatedly why these things won't work and what. And then you know probably they would tarnish you personally say that you're mad and that you don't have a, you know a right to express those kind of opinions all sorts of stuff would happen but it would be good to distill it down to five simple things so what like are some of those ideas you saying massive debt cancellation for for everybody cancel all debt that's a really cool one i'd like that i'd like to get rid of my mortgage i'm in i like i like um and um, what's the, what were some of the other ones? A global minimum wage of 50% of that national median. That was, yeah. a, that was a good one yeah. that we were aiming for. Yeah. Now, like, now, say we think of a few more, because I'm literally trying to organise a global revolution <laughs> okay. during this podcast. So, so, oh, go on. Yeah, so, um, You're the expert.
1: So, uh, so in, the, in the second to last chapter of my book, I actually have, in fact, a list of exactly five things we can do to change the global economy. So Tell us we, them! So we've already talked about a lot of them. We have debt. We, we have cancelling debt. We have the, the uh, changing the wage system um we have democratizing global governance of economic policy um, i think that there are, there are easy ways we can we can change the international trade system to make it much fairer to poor countries as well so and that and you know right for example you know right now uh um because of the wto's uruguay round which came in, into effect in the 1990s uh global south countries are losing on average 700 billion us dollars in potential gdp per year because of uh, imbalances in the in the WTO trading structure, so and that's seven times more than they receive in aid, right? So this mm-hmm. is a major cause of global inequality. Aid is irrelevant. Uh, aid is completely irrelevant. So in the book, I lay out ways that we can change the trade system, um, and then also I think that uh, a really crucial one here is thinking about climate change, because here's the deal: we know for a fact that. Uh, the vast majority of historical emissions, 70 uh, percent of them, in fact, um, have come from uh, from industrialized countries in the West. OK, but the the vast bulk of the consequences of climate change are hitting the global south mm. uh, really, really dramatically uh, through wildfires, you know, droughts, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so and, and as a result of climate change, uh, global south countries are losing in the region of five hundred billion dollars per year in terms of losses, And uh, you know, which again outstrips the aid budget by a factor of five. There, so we need we need much uh, more rigorous action on climate change to uh, to um, to get rich countries to reduce their. All
0: these points point to all all of these proposed regulations mean that powerful economic interests would be curbed and confronted. Can you imagine them ever, like, it? Like sort of history sort of looks to me, like, at a glance, and that's all I've ever given it, uh, like a sort of a struggle between the powerful and the powerless with the powerful conceding the bare minimum amount of power they can concede. Alright, bloody hell, women want the vote. Alright, we can't have slavery anymore. <laughs> Alright, okay, like, I mean, they just, but they'll hang on to it for as long as they can, and then give the minimum. And in each case, you would say, well, you know, like, here we are, all these years after suffrage and women are are still exploited and not paid as much as men. And the United States, look what's happening around race and continues to happen around race. So these things, in a sense, move slowly unless there's sort of radical systemic change. And do you think it's unlikely for radical systemic change to be brought around without force and death?
1: (laughs) Um... Yeah, so um, I agree with you, and I think that basically the system we have right now is a kind of global apartheid, uh, and it's and uh, just as the the anti apartheid struggle in South Africa required um, you know immense collective mobilization, uh, I think the the same is going to be true of this struggle. Um, we need to abolish global apartheid, and uh, will it will it end up? Uh, you know, in conflicts, um it's definitely possible, and historically, when attempts have been made to make the world fairer, then that has been the case um, but you know wh- wh- what is promising is that uh is that people around the global south are are increasingly conscious of how unfair the system is to them, and they are the majority of the world and and and, and the more and more that we include them in our in our in our discussions in our in our discourse, through the internet, through our media, etc., Um, you know, the more this message is going to come through.
0: But how do we galvanise some working class white bloke in Doncaster or indeed Essex? You know, because they similarly are suffering as a result of this economic system, but they're not going to start thinking, you know, identify with some bloke in Chile. You know, how do you have a global movement? You know, like and this isn't just happening in the global south, like during the time that we've been doing this podcast, you know there's people probably minimum wage worker because this is a business that I imagine would not take the risk of paying people below minimum wage, although they'll probably outsource to a cleaning company that are using people that are you know God knows how they're documented or whatever
1: you know like so like this
0: is not hemispherically divided. this is everywhere,
1: <clears throat> yeah, I think that's definitely true. We can definitely see elements of the south right here in the north. there's no question about it. Um, and not just actually people from the South who are suffering, uh, you know among us, but uh, but the same dynamics. Um, of the South, like you know, slums and uh, horrible healthcare healthcare conditions, and so on, are present right you know in global North countries themselves.
0: Yeah, because you are an expert. Uh, I'm picking up from the intro on like, like the sort of ethnographic stuff, right? And like, but like, in, like so, all this Charlottesville lark, let's call it, last week. You know, that's sort of like why that's I went to university. Can you imagine? You're kidding me. It's crazy. So what do you think? Right. So what do you think about that? I mean, oh, like you know, like sort of for me, once people start parading around for getting all Nazi, that's sort of a clear indication they feel hugely disempowered Mm. like you know while people say oh you know under the sort of current uh, trump administration people would feel it's more it's it's somehow acceptable to express more extremist views that that may be true but also those people must be feeling something Mm. in order to do that Mm. you and i know and most people know that what they're targeting is incorrect and Immoral, but what they're feeling is real. They're feeling something. They're feeling anger, rage. How do we reach those people, or do we just go forget it? They're nutters, or you know what I mean? Because I don't feel that way. I feel like, oh, this is these people need help.
1: Yeah, I I mean, I completely agree, and I'm very torn because on the one on the one hand, you know, I think that we absolutely have to fight fascism wherever it rears its ugly head, but on the other hand, we do have to feel a kind of compassion for. Uh, for uh, at least at least for those who who reach these conclusions because they feel immiserated or dispossessed or something like that right. uh, in in, in, le- in a legitimate sense right uh, so so to the extent that there are people who turn to these narratives these white nationalist narratives because they feel that the system is screwing them uh, in some real sense because the system is very unfair let's be mm. honest I think that absolutely we have to uh, we have to work on building their consciousness. Um, to the extent that these people have not been immiserated but are nonetheless still racist pricks, then we can't give them any of our compassion. That's, I guess that's kind of the way I feel about that. Because yeah. I, you know, like, I don't know why the practice is
0: because I'm a white man, but like, I, I feel like when that sort of stuff happens and I, I look at their faces with those torches, I think, this is weird stuff, man. And I feel like we... I feel we can't leave people behind. I'm not suggesting... You know, it's obvious my allegiance lies with people that aren't marching around with torches. But, like, I feel that unless you address the the resource rage, the feeling, unless people... Like, you know, because well, who should they be angry with? They're unhappy. I don't think you can get people to march around in the streets holding a torch unless there's something really mm-hmm. seriously wrong. You know, And like, and unless that's addressed then this will reformulate and re-manifest the way that's clear over the course of our conversation, Jason, that the exploitation that came with colonisation simply represented as globalisation, that behind the mask of uh, the the previous national identity, corporate identities were able to continue the same exploitation, making little nods and gestures here or there when it became impossible to not do that. But to make significant change, you have to start dealing with what... What people are feeling what's happening in people's hearts and minds and spirits because it's really yeah. excellent to hear you outline how these things have happened why they've happened and what would need to change in order for significant redistribution or a fairer society to emerge but like a, unless people can be emotionally engaged I don't see how that will happen because I think most people have a vague idea everything's corrupt everything's you know you can't but I think people also feel broadly impotent
1: yeah. Um, I think that another another thing we have to consider here is that, you know, the, the South might just take matters into their own hands. right? Oh. And, and, and already, you know, and, and I guess in a way, like we're kind of irrelevant to this to the struggle. I, I mean, we oh, in the wait. West, like we're obviously on the wrong side. So uh, so if you look like if you look at what's happening in the South already, you know, you have in Latin America, you have um, a number of governments working together to form kind of like uh, like alternative trade networks. That, um, that are that are based on fairer principles, and um, you know you have you have the rise of alternative in, uh, alternative institutions like the uh, the BRICS Bank and the Asian Infrastructure Development Bank that are trying that are trying to provide an alternative to the International Monetary Fund uh,
0: mm. and
1: render these these big global organizations irrelevant. Yes. Uh, right now we don't know if the, if that's going to work. Or if they're going to be like instruments of sort of sub-imperial evil for the countries that run them, like China, right? Yeah, we yeah. don't know, but uh, but at least that's what people are trying to do, and there is some hope there, I think.
0: And perhaps behind these ideas, I wonder is like that when you were saying this stuff, like you know, when you think of like you know how we regard the global narrative, like that. Oh no, this is just the way things are. Some countries are rich, some countries are poor. It's because we got uh, got off up off up our asses and invented the spinning jenny, and then and then the VDU, and you know. You know, behind, sort of within this, there are sort of concurrent narratives around things like Darwinism that uh, underwrite that kind of philosophy, survival of the fittest. Life is a struggle for resources, and that's just the way it is. The fittest and the strongest and the best survive. These are already sort of selective narrativisations of history. The the mechanistic model of the planet, the world is a bit like a machine. Evolution's a bit like a machine, selecting and making binary choices. Like, as long as we are uh, underwritten by that kind of philosophy, then why would we be compassionate, or why would any emergent system not resort ultimately to like you said a sub-imperial or comparable trend you know yeah. like setting up some rival economic model sort of that china's involved in i don't know much about china but there's like they don't look to me like their friends over there f- threading flowers for each other's hair and giving each other massages yeah. looks like they could be a pretty leery bunch as well if it all ever yeah. kicks off so unless like you know where are the resources for these rules where why are we going to come up with a, from where do we reach inside of ourselves and find a philosophy by which we can legitimately live and call ourselves human and call ourselves brothers and sisters and custodians of this planet? You know, mm-hmm. where what is going to be the resource? And this is the bit where I go it's spirituality. <laughs>
1: I think that's I think that's actually so important. Uh, I think that we have we have to start realizing that we are all connected. Um, that you know that we're brothers and sisters. I think that's so essential. And it sounds it sounds so silly to say. I guess yeah, because really. we've
0: been taught to think it's all silly, so that people can crack on and exploit everyone. Don't say that. It's silly to be brothers and sisters right now. Shut up. You're not brothers and sisters. You're an individual. <laughs> but oh, so, bye.
1: you know, if, if globalization has done anything good for us. Uh, um, it, it's, it's the globalization of our sense of connection. And, um, you know, I think that, that, uh, you know, we're, we're definitely more aware of each other right now. And, um, I think that, yeah, we need, we need to realize that, uh, in order for us to, to create a world where, where we were able to eradicate poverty, um, we need to learn how to share. I think that's Mm. so fundamental because the narrative that we've been sold from people in power is that the only way to eradicate poverty is through GDP growth, right? But we know that on a limited planet, which is what we live on, uh, and in an era of rapid climate change, continued GDP growth is not an option. Mm. So without without growing the GDP and having some of it trickle down to the poorest, how are we going to eradicate poverty? The only way to do it is to share what we already have more fairly. And that's got to be a realization for us. None of us want to live in a world that's marked where 60% of the human population is in in poverty, right? Uh, If you talk to the average bloke on the street, they're not going to want that. Uh, And so the key is is to realize what's necessary for us to create an alternative world. And that really is sharing. Uh, and that's exactly the opposite kind of narrative uh, to the one that we've been fed all of our lives.
0: That's right, and it's been underwritten, again, by different aspects of science and philosophy. Darwinism, science, like a a survival of the fittest, not suggesting that evolution isn't real. Of course it is. It's empirically and provably and demonstrably real. But the implication that we should be competing with one another for resources is a sort of, that's conjecture. That's just an idea. A different idea would be we should be sharing that we are here together, Mm. that our life as individuals is... not as important as our life as a community gal what did you hold up a question just there mate what was it and this is a question jason i've just thought up with using my brilliant little brain is there any hope within current global power structures are there any good guys anyone we can look to optimistically um don't feel obliged to say me that's already (laughs)
1: obvious (laughs) i think there's some interesting people you know i was talking about structural adjustment earlier crucially those ex- the exact same policies that were imposed on the south in the 1980s are now being imposed all over southern europe right and greece of course is the is the uh, the key example of this um, uh, so, Greece is being structurally adjusted for the sake of bailing out French and German banks, basically the same thing that happened in the 1980s for the south and uh, so, And so you have the emergence of uh, of resistance there in the form mm. of Syriza, or at least it was a kind of resistance and Yanis Varoufakis. and yeah, that
0: dude 's uh, cool
1: he 's a cool guy, yeah, and I, I, I like what he has to say, um, but it 's not just him. there are also people um, you know elsewhere in the South I think that uh, um, the president do you of Bolivia- want to
0: create a gang. Of Global Crusaders, a bit like the uh, Marvel Avengers franchise, and uh, I'm in it as well. And uh, we all go around, coming up with brilliant ideas, and then me sort of going into shamanic trances, preaching it all around the world.
1: (laughs) Yes, I definitely want to do that. So... (laughs) <laughs> Speaking of shamanic chanting, I really like the point you made about spirituality and uh, and this is why because I feel like look right now the the levels of consumption that we enjoy in the West are completely uh, are completely based on extraction and plunder in the south it, mm. th- they, they depend on the immiseration of people uh, in in, uh, in poor countries now, I think that that actually probably plays really, really badly for our for our sense of psyche and our, mm. our like, inner well being I think that None of us want to live in a world like that, where deep inside we know that every, the, the things we consume and the privilege that we have depends on the suffering of other people. I think it makes us all like deeply anxious on some even unspoken level, even if we don't acknowledge it. Yes. Uh, and so, you know, in order to have a kind of inner healing, we have to we have to live in a world where our daily actions are not creating misery in the rest of the world.
0: That's beautiful. We need to become conscious. We need to become awake. We need to think how happy is that phone making me? How happy are these trainers making me? Become aware. Don't be distracted. Don't lose your connection. Connect to who you really are. Any um, books you want going to recommend for us? Obviously your book, which is called The Divide, A Brief Guide to Global Inequality and Its Solutions. Brief, eh? It's brief. brief. Yeah, it's <laughs> oh, basically this, mate. A big bangs
1: right on, doesn't it? How many pages? Um, it's like three hundred and forty. That's with not notes. brief. That in- I think that includes endnotes and stuff. You don't have to read those. I won't. It. I'm going to tear it out as soon tear as I mind. get it. That whole bit of the back, I'm well, tearing I've it. I brought you a copy. I'm going to sign it for you. Oh, my
0: God. Um, I'm not going but... to tear the back out. I'm going to kiss it.
1: <laughs> I'm going to kiss it and touch it and cuddle it. Um, I guess I would recommend, you know, one of my favorite uh, thinkers in this field is a guy named ha Chang, a brilliant professor uh, in Cambridge. And he wrote an amazing book called Bad Samaritans. And I definitely <laughs> recommend that people read that. What's his name again? His name is ha Chang. ha Chang. Chang. Yeah, he's from South Korea. See, I find it hard to
0: remember non-sort of Christian sounding names. What's the, who is that African bloke? Thomas, what? Thomas Sankara. Thomas Sankara, we're looking him up. And, and what's the South Korean economist fella? Uh, his name is uh, is Hajoon Chang. Hajoon Chang, Thomas Sankara. Next week, there will be a quiz. If you don't know anything about those two people, you will be banned from downloading this podcast. Jason, thanks for coming on our show. You've been absolutely illumin- uh, brilliantly illuminating. So clear, so wonderful. I feel smarter already. I've memorized some of those things you've said. What a wonderful guest you are. Thank you. Thanks, Russell. Thanks, man. That show was sponsored by my new book, Recovery. To pre-order your copy, go to russellbrand.com or you can go through there's an Amazon link, actually, that you can go to. I've probably tweeted it. And if you like this show, please subscribe and review it wherever you got it, like iTunes or that other one that, if you've got an Android phone. Please only give it five stars because uh, I take the reviews quite seriously and I could be offended. and You wouldn't like that, would you? <laughs>